Good morning. I have the wrong glasses this morning. I was in a hurry, I think, but I'm going to do my very best. So if you'll bear with me. Sam, 1 Samuel 10, verses 17 to 27. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord of, at Mezpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Saul had all Israel come forward by the tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin's clan by clan. And Marta's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked to him, he was not to be found. So they inquired, Father of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any one of the others. Saul said to all of the people, Do you see the man of the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Saul, or Samuel, explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accomplished, accompanied by a valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him to him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. Thank you, Charlie. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this story from your word. We pray that as we examine it together, that we would be able to glean lessons and applications that would speak to us, that would inform our decision-making, inform our daily living and most importantly, would inform our service in your name. We ask this in that name. Amen. So, remember last week, I was reminiscing about an I Love Lucy episode. <laughs> uh, you know, I hadn't thought about that episode in years. And it was interesting that while I was working on this message, the same thing happened. Thought of another I Love Lucy episode. 
I don't know how biblical Lucy and Ethel were, but you know that we can make connections, uh, connections, I think, sometimes. In this particular episode, and I'll just never forget this because the timing was just perfect, as it so often was in those, those uh, sitcoms. But Lucy and Ethel are members of an organized group, and the, the group leader is looking for volunteers, and nobody wants to volunteer. It's some undesirable task. I don't remember exactly what it was. So Lucy and Ethel are arguing over who should volunteer for this. And uh, the leader says, anyone who's interested, please raise your hand. And with perfect timing, Ethel tells Lucy, oh, there's a hole in your dress. And Lucy goes, oh, where? Like <laughs> and of course, she raises her arm, and you guessed it, she volunteers for, uh, the, for whatever that task was. So in that example, Lucy was a reluctant volunteer much the same way that Saul is a reluctant volunteer in today's scripture. And so this morning we're going to tell the story of the calling of Saul to be the first king of Israel as found in the, the really the 8th, the ninth, and the 10th chapters of 1 Samuel. You know, uh, Saul had humble beginnings. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe that he himself described as the least of all the tribes of Israel. And then he also asked, is not my clan the least of all the clans in the tribe of Benjamin? A tribe was divided into clans, clans were divided into families, and Saul knows that his tribe is the smallest. And within that tribe, his clan, which was Matri, was the smallest clan. Well, Saul comes onto the scene in the Old Testament not with pomp and circumstance, not with uh, robes, a crown, or regalness, but he's looking for his father's donkeys. You see, that's what his task was. And he really wasn't being very effective at finding them. In fact, Saul never did find the donkeys uh, in, the, the, in the story that we find. We do, however, uh, read that Kish's son Saul was a very impressive young man. Without equal, it's really saying in uh, 1 Samuel 9-2. There's no mention of his wisdom. There's no mention of his virtue. There's no mention of his learning or of his character, but we know he was handsome. He must have been good looking. And he was tall. It says that he was a full head taller than anyone else. But as far as tracking down lost donkeys, nah, he's not too good. That wasn't very successful at that. In fact, the search has gone on for so long that Saul is afraid that his dad is going to start worrying less about the donkeys and more about Saul and the servants because they've been gone for so long out doing the, the searching. Uh, but one of the servants that is with Saul has an idea. And he has heard of a man of God in the next town who is a prophet. He refers to him as a seer. He's highly respected, and the servant tells Saul that everything that he says comes true. But now Saul starts to worry about something else other than donkeys, and that is he, he doesn't have anything to give to this prophet uh, in payment or in appreciation for helping them. They've been out searching so long that all their food is gone. They don't have any money. They have no gift to give him. And one of the servants, uh, in fact, the servant to whom Paul, Saul rather is talking, produces a quarter of a shekel 
and said that he's willing to give that up, give that to the man of God so that he will tell us which way to take. Now, the man that the servant is referring to was Samuel. You know, we know Samuel. Uh, to give you a little bit of a backstory, Samuel was one of Israel's judges, being responsible for uh, making decisions and for leading the people. But Samuel was getting old. He had appointed his two sons, his sons Joel and Abijah, but that just was not working out. They were not very faithful. They were corrupt, in fact. They did not walk in Samuel's ways. They were dishonest. They were accepting bribes in exchange for their rulings. And they just didn't govern justly, let alone effectively. So as a result, the people, Israel, they were putting pressure on Samuel. And they repeated their age-old old Saul, you know, the old whining of wanting a king. Now you have to realize, if you don't already, that Israel was unique in a number of different ways, and one of those was that they did not have a king. First and foremost, God was their king. He was their ruler, he was the master over all the people, and usually most governments or most uh, kingdoms, most kingships, begin as a result of some ambitious person who wants the job, who wants to be in control, wants to rule over all the people. Someone who is usually power hungry. And in the case of Israel, you have the people asking for a king. Now that just didn't happen very often. They're actually begging for someone to take over and to rule over them. And did they know what they were asking for? No, probably not. So Samuel takes this cry of the people and he takes it before the Lord. He's, Samuel's feeling very dejected, very... Uh, rejected. But God says to Samuel, it's not you that they have rejected. They've rejected me, God, as their king. And they've done that from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. And God tells Samuel to listen to the people. That must have been a hard pill for Samuel to swallow. But he also says, okay, listen to the people but tell them what they're in store for. Tell them what it's going to be like when a king reigns over them. And so Samuel does exactly that. He tells the people how a king will compel them to work, not for themselves, but to work for the kingdom. Their sons will be taken, they will be conscripted into the king's army to care for his chariots, to care for his horses. Thousands of others are going to be uh, drafted as soldiers into his army. Others are going to be required to plow and to harvest his crops. Others will have to work to make weapons. Daughters will be taken to be his perfumers and to be his cooks and to be his bakers. And Samuel makes it very plain. He really doesn't mince any words. He tells them that the king will take the best of your fields He's going to take the best of your vineyards and going to take the best of your olive groves, taking a tenth of all the grain that you produce and all of your crops. And he goes on and on, and then he concludes by saying, and you yourselves, you yourselves will become his slaves. And how do the people respond? Well, unfortunately, you guessed it. No, we want a king over us.
Then we're going to be like all the other nations. You see, that's what they really wanted to be. We'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us, to go out before us, and to fight our battles. We want to be like everyone else. Where have you heard that before? We're the only ones who don't have a king. Fill in the blank. We're the only ones who, whatever. Everybody else has a king. It's not fair, right? It's not fair. Well, it's kind of juvenile behavior, isn't it? And we can kind of chuckle at it. It sounds a lot like the reaction that we get from children whenever we limit their, their, them in some way, place some type of conditions or limits upon them. But adults act the same way too. You know, think about the newspaper, think about the news, the words fairness, equality, impartiality. They're words that we hear in the, in the news every day. Everyone wants to make certain that they have what everybody else has. And nobody wants any less than anyone else has. No one wants anybody else to get ahead of them. We see this in uh, labor negotiations. We see this in taxation, in government services, in hiring, uh, and in job quotas, all those kinds of things. The list goes on and on. And Israel was no exception in this regard. You see, they suffered from the grass is greener on the other side of the fence syndrome. They uh, refused to see or perhaps were not able to see that they, the nation of Israel, they were a chosen people, that God had blessed them beyond all other nations. But they, they couldn't see that. They had, God had delivered them from the hands of their captors in miraculous ways on, on numerous occasions. And they were different. They were set apart. And that's why they didn't have a king. But you see, they couldn't see it. They didn't realize it. They weren't able to focus on what they had. Instead, they focused on what they saw that they didn't have. And they didn't have a king. Now, the same is true of us today. We do indeed tend to focus on what we don't have rather than on what we do have. This is an important realization for us to make because God in his infinite wisdom many times will help us learn that lesson if we need to learn it. There are certain life experiences that come our way that strip away all that is unimportant and leave us with nothing else than what really matters. Well, Israel had not learned that lesson. Even after listening to the warning from Saul, and much to his dismay, God tells him, listen to the people and give them a king. Well, in response, Samuel sends them all back home. And it's at this point that God brings Samuel and Saul face to face for the first time. Remember that Saul, at the recommendation of one of his servants, is looking for a prophet. They want to find those donkeys that they, they couldn't find. So they're hoping that this prophet is able to, to help them. And so he comes to the gate of the town, and when Samuel sees Saul, God tells him, this is the one. This is the one that I've chosen. So when Saul says, I'm looking for the seer, the prophet, can you tell me where to find him? Samuel says, I'm the, I'm the seer. I'm the prophet. Now there's several messages that are communicated to Paul at this time. First, he's still worried about those donkeys. All right? 
finding those donkeys. So Samuel assures them, assures Saul that the donkeys have been found. They're all taken care of. And he invites Saul to eat with him. And he tells Saul that the desire of the whole nation, the desire of all of Israel, is focused on Saul. And Saul says, why would you say something like that to me? Why would you say such a thing? And later at that same meal, Saul is given the very best seat, the seat of honor, and he's given the special, a special dish, the special piece of meat, of mutton, that was reserved for only the priests. And he's beginning to really wonder what's going on here. You know, he's starting to look over his shoulder, I think, wondering, well, what's, what's up? All of these things were reserved for the most honored guest. And later in private, Samuel provides him with more information. He, t he told Saul that the people's desire for a king and of God granting their desire, he informs him about that, and then he anoints Saul and he kissed him. And that anointing meant that he was chosen by God and Samuel kissing Saul meant that he had Samuel's support. And then he gave Saul three signs, three things that are going to take place on that very day. And they were this, that he would receive word from his father's house that all was fine, the donkeys had been found. Secondly, God would put it in the hearts of several people who were going to Bethel to make a sacrifice that they would come to Saul and they would present him with some God-inspired gift, fit for a prince. And finally, that he, Saul, would prophesy. And that was something that Saul had never done before in his life which is where our text for today really picks up. And Saul is amazed. He can't believe that all of this has happened. It's really kind of taken him by surprise. But now he's given the further assurance because each and every one of those three signs takes place. It comes to fruition, comes to pass, just as Samuel foretold. And we're told that Saul goes to a high place. Now what does that mean? Well, it means that he went somewhere to pray. He went somewhere to thank God and to pray for strength. But all that has happened is kept a secret. In fact, when he comes down from that high place after praying and he sees his uncle, he only tells him that they were out looking for the donkeys when his uncle asks him, you know, what's going on? What, what have you been doing? And the only thing Samuel tells, tells him is that the donkeys have been found. Well, now we're beginning to see that Saul is modest. He certainly had the opportunity to share what was going on with excitement, really, uh, with his uncle, even boast, but he doesn't even mention it. And then we come to our scripture for today, which describes the actual election of Saul as Israel's king. The king was to be selected by lot, and that could have meant a couple of different things. It could mean that marked stones or sticks were drawn out of some type of a container, or that the container was shaken until one of the stones or the sticks would fly out, indicating who was selected and therefore who was ordained by God. But you see, there's a process here. It doesn't just, they don't put everybody's name uh, on a stone or on a stick. It starts out with the tribes and then it goes to the clans and then to the families and so on. And so first, the tribe from which the king will be selected is chosen by Lot and it's the tribe of Benjamin. Saul's tribe. And next the clans are brought forth and the clan of Matri is chosen. And finally Saul the son of Kish was chosen just as Samuel foretold Israel's 
first king. Well, naturally, this was big news. This was exciting news. This is what the people had been longing for. This is what the people wanted. But everybody looks around for Saul. They can't find him. They don't know where he is. They didn't even know if he had arrived. He was really making himself scarce, because they even questioned if he was even there. But God, who sees in secret, knew where Saul was. You see, he was hiding. He was hiding himself, it says in the NIV, among the supplies. I like the RSV, the Revised Standard Version. It says he was hiding, hiding among the baggage. <laughs> you know, baggage has a double meaning, which we can talk about a little bit more this morning. But it was the equipment, you know, the equipment or the supplies. Um, the New King James, I think, says stuff. <laughs> There's a descriptive word for you. He was hiding among the stuff. And uh, so they went and pulled him out. He is set among the people, and true enough, he did stand a head taller than everyone else. And a cry goes up from the people, long live the king. Now, what was going on with Saul hiding in the baggage? What was that all about? You know, why was he having second thoughts, if that is in fact what he was having? Why had he withdrawn? Why had he made himself so scarce? Was it in hopes that if the people couldn't find him, that they'd move on and select somebody else? Maybe they'd make another choice? Why the reluctance, especially knowing everything that he knew about being chosen by God, being anointed by God, being blessed by Samuel, and the signs, the signs that Samuel had foretold, all of them came through, just as Samuel had said. Wouldn't that have convinced Saul that he was the man for the job? Well, apparently not. And in some cases, there is something to say for a reluctant leader. It sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? A reluctant leader. But, you know, there are many examples of that. Something to say about a person who has all of the virtues, all of the qualities, all of the characteristics, the attributes of a leader, including humility. You don't often see that. Don't often see that. But the Bible is filled with them. Unsuspecting individuals who were called to do great things. You think of Abraham and Sarah. You think of Noah. You think of uh, Moses, right? David. The list goes on and on and continues into the, the New Testament. And it's substantial. And Saul was one of those reluctant leaders. Now granted, Saul's story does not end well. And there are a lot of reasons for that. That's a whole different sermon in itself, or two or three. You know, he made a share of mistakes. And I guess, you know, as I look at that, I can't help but wonder, did some of those mistakes have their root in his misgivings about being called into the role of king in the first place? Well, did Saul have time to think about all that had happened? Was he having second thoughts when he spied this pile of stuff, this pile of baggage or equipment, and saw it as a potential hiding place. What could he have been thinking? Well, we're really gonna, never going to know. Perhaps he was feeling unfit for such a great task. Perhaps he was uncomfortable with all of the attention that he was receiving and it was being showered upon him, knowing that there were going to be others who were going to be jealous of him. He knew that this was what the people wanted, but he also knew that this was not what God wanted. Was that a cause 
for his reluctance. Did he really want to get involved in something that was not God's will? And after all, Israel was not exactly in a really great position at this point in time. The Philistines were strong. The Ammonites were threatening. He was facing an impending storm. Whatever it was, he clutched. He hesitated. He wanted to renege. He wanted to bow out. He wanted to say, Saranara. <laughs> you know, adios, au revoir. You get the idea. You know, how many times have, have we hidden among the baggage? And what is the baggage that we're hiding behind? Well, it's a pretty sure bet that none of us will be called to be a king. That's a guarantee, I guess. But we're all called. Each and every one of us is called. Make no mistake about it. As Christians, we are called to be Christ's men and women. We are called to be his disciples, his witnesses, his ministers. And we're called to do his will in our daily lives. So what is it that gets in the way? Well, sometimes it's because we're busy. Do we hide behind our jobs or behind our responsibilities or behind our schedules? How about our studies? Or maybe we even hide behind our lack of education. We can use that as an excuse. How about our insecurities? Do we hide because we don't feel adequate? Because we've never done anything like that. Do we hide behind that? There may even be some who hide as a result of a physical condition or because of uh, some type of limitation. We also often hide behind our sins or our struggles, convincing ourselves that we aren't good enough, we aren't worthy enough to be used by God to further his plan. The list goes on and on and on and on, and in fact, for as many things as God calls us to do, there are that many excuses. Now consider PFC, consider our own church. You know, think about all of the people that it takes out to, that it takes to carry out any ministry of this church. And then consider all of the outreaches of this congregation. There are many people who are involved, many hardworking, dedicated laborers. But consider this, the number of actual workers is probably smaller than you might think. And that's because there are people who take on one or more than one responsibility or project, and sometimes there are those who take on many more than one. And I, in fact, I would guess that the people who are involved represent only a fraction of the total of all the members and friends of this congregation. And you know what that means. It means that there are those who are hiding behind the baggage, right? And, you know, what do you do when you're approached to assist in the ministry of this church? You know, make no mistake about it, as I said earlier, we are all called. You know, do you head for the baggage? Do you make yourself scarce? You know, where can you plug yourself in? Maybe it's something that you've never tried before. Maybe it will cause you to get out of your comfort zone, to stretch yourself. Maybe you're going to have to depend on God for the strength that you'll need and the guidance and the direction that, it will, that will be required. But that's what he's there for. And that's what he wants. He wants us to have communion with him. He wants us to depend on him. 
King Saul's New Testament namesake. Remember that Saul in the New Testament? Another reluctant leader, especially at the beginning. Well, he had been hiding among the baggage for certain. He was persecuting Christians, and he was really good at it. He had the praise and the admiration of his people, of his religion, of the religious leaders, but not of God. And he certainly was not following God's will. And he had a major life-changing experience. I guess we could call it a Damascus Road experience, couldn't we? It, it was the original one. <laughs> we still refer to uh, when someone has a life-changing experience like that as a Damascus Road experience. That comes from Saul, Paul. He became as if on fire for the Lord. Talk about a transition. Light and night and day. Light and dark. And what did he have to say? What did he have to say? Well, let's look at Romans, uh, eight verses from, from uh, Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's enough right there. But he goes on. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And so the message for today Stop hiding, get rid of the baggage, and get busy for God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the story of Saul. Help us to learn to depend on you. Father, help us to cast aside our misgivings, and our reluctance, our hesitation, and our perceived imperfections. May each one of us gather here today make it our top priority to discover your will for our lives and then to cast aside our concerns and to devote our entire beings into furthering your kingdom and carrying out your will on this earth and in this place, this place where we find ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the benediction. And now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, 
be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Depart in peace. Amen.